me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this morning verses 4 through 9. <clears throat> Last week as we got started with our series in 1 Corinthians officially, we, we were reminded how Paul started out his letter in the, the ordinary way, following the standard format of his time for a letter, uh, identifying himself as author, uh, identifying his audience, and then speaking a word of, of greeting. And then that was usually followed in the, the Roman context by some declaration of praise to the Roman gods. And so if you glance at the opening words of, of 1 Corinthians, you notice Paul generally following this pattern. He's content to do that, although he amends it, of course, with new significance and spiritual purpose. So we saw last week in verses 1 through 3, Paul weave into his introductory greetings themes that he's going to develop and unfold throughout the rest of this letter. And this week, in place of a declaration of praise to the Roman gods, Paul offers a word of thanksgiving to the one true and living God. And we also saw last week that not all was well with the Corinthian church by any stretch of the imagination. We're going to see in the weeks ahead that there were problems of division and schism and you know, party spirit. Uh, Christians were suing one another in secular courts and dishonoring the name of Jesus. There was sexual immorality of such perversion that not even the pagan Corinthians would dare to speak about it. Uh, and, and yet, for all of their sin and immorality, the Corinthian Christians still found reasons to be spiritual snobs. Uh, they looked down on others. There was also theological confusion, disorder in their worship, and are just a real profound failure to love one another. And beyond all of that, then, there's also the, the deep confusion that they had about how they as Corinthian believers ought to relate in uh, the culture around them. They had been converted out of the culture of Corinth, but of course they still lived within it. And the value system, the cultural expectations, the social norms, the language of the day still had a huge pull on them and was wreaking havoc in their lives and within their fellowship as a church. And so... Putting it lightly, Paul had a lot to deal with in this letter, didn't he? There's a lot to address, lots to rebuke and correct. And that is, I think, what makes the opening of this letter so surprising. The way he begins in verse 4. Notice he does not begin with a word of rebuke, but rather a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the Corinthians. <laughs> Now, I imagine that, you know, some of the Corinthians, maybe the Corinthian leadership, upon the reception of this letter, they're thinking, oh boy, here, here it is. Paul's really going to let us have it. He's, he's really going to lay into us. But how disarming it must have been then to hear Paul begin, not with a devastating series of rebukes or critique after critique after critique, but instead to offer this extended 
thoughtful, specific word of thanksgiving to God for the Corinthians. It's an expression, I think, of Paul's deep and abiding love for these believers, despite all of their problems and failures. I think it's crucial then that we recognize this, this is a sincere prayer of thanksgiving. These are not, you know, words of flattery. Paul is not trying to butter up the Corinthians before he beats them up. That's not what's going on here. He means every word. And that is because Paul has a real, deep, abiding gratitude to God for these believers. Paul could have begun his letter with a a list of complaints, but instead he opens with sincere thanksgiving. Now that is a word to us, don't you think, before we even read our text I mean, after all, being critical comes so easily, doesn't it? Uh, Critiquing others, it just seems to come naturally to us. Haven't you found that to be the case? I know I have. But cultivating a grateful heart for the people of God in in the pews around you, for your church, that's the example that Paul sets before us here. So I just wonder as we as we begin to make our way into this passage, what is what is your default? thinking? What are the first words that come out of your mouth when you think and talk about Trinity PCA? Uh, are, they, are you thankful? Do you express gratitude to God for what he's doing and continues to do among this body of believers? Or do you have a complaining spirit that betrays a lovelessness that actually makes you more like the apostle Uh, more like the Corinthians than the Apostle Paul. In this prayer, Paul gives thanks for God's gracious work in their lives. And as he does so, he he highlights some of the the major uh, themes that characterize the lives of the Corinthian Christians. It reads as a sort of spiritual biography. Uh, If you like biographies, Paul here is outlining the spiritual biography of the Corinthian Christians as he recounts their story. He he wants to show them what God graciously did in their lives. And as we look at it this morning, I think we can take encouragement from what God has graciously done and what he may yet do in our lives as a congregation. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Please keep your Bibles open to that passage. You're going to want to have it in front of you. But as I was saying, this reads as a kind of spiritual biography of the Corinthian Christians. Here's what God has done and is doing among them. And here's what God has done, is doing, or may yet do among us. So I want to look at four themes here of the Christian life as Paul outlines them here. And the first theme is this, that the Christian life 
is a profoundly Christ-centered life. The Christian life is a profoundly Christ-centered life. Now, as I read the prayer, I hope you heard it again and again and again. Almost in every verse, the name of Jesus mentioned. Uh, It's everywhere. Verse 4, the grace of God is given to the Corinthians in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, they are enriched in every way in him. The testimony confirmed among them, verse 6, is about the Lord Jesus Christ. They lived their lives, verse 7, waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our faithful God is the one who has called us into the fellowship of his Son, verse 9, our Lord Jesus Christ. So the prayer is full of Jesus. It is a Christ-centered prayer because the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. Now notice notice the bookends of the prayer here in verse 4 and verse 9, both giving special emphasis to our union with Christ. We are, in verse 4, in Christ, and the grace of God is given to us in Christ Jesus. The grace of God that we enjoy is not some sort of blob of benefits that God impersonally communicates to those who are his. Rather, grace is the disposition, the orientation of the heart of God toward us in Christ. When we were brought into personal union with his son, his heart overflows with grace, with favor to us because we are found in the highly favored one, the Father's beloved Son. And and look down at the other end of the passage in verse 9 then. God is faithful who has called us into the fellowship. The word means participation or sharing, communion, fellowship of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, the Father's effective call in the gospel, preached in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, brought us from being men and women in Adam to being men and women in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. And there we have, in in him, there we have fellowship and communion and participation with him to be To be a Christian then means at the most basic, definitive, fundamental level means to be a man or woman or boy or girl in Christ. To be related to, identified with, found in him. And everything else in our Christian lives, Paul made clear, I think, as he gives a summary of the Corinthians' lives, everything is then centered on or in some way connected to an aspect of our relationship to Jesus Christ, or being joined with him. And so the grace we receive at the beginning, and the grace we continue to receive, every step of the way, Paul says, we receive in him. And therefore, that inevitably leads us to this conclusion, doesn't it? That therefore, the Christian life, Biblically informed is a profoundly Christ-centered life. The testimony 
confirmed among us is all about him. As we're reflecting on here, the divine grace that we receive, we receive in him. We wait for his appearing, Paul will say. It is a profoundly Christ-centered, Christ-saturated life. But maybe, maybe you've grown up uh, in church and, and you've missed this. Or maybe you're new to the church and you haven't thought about this yet. I've met folks who, who basically think Christianity is another form of, of self-help to discovering the, a better you. Maybe, maybe you think that Christianity is a, another coping mechanism when things get difficult or a means of finding a place in a community. Well, well and good. I hope you find that in, in the church. But others still think that Christianity is basically a means of you know, social action or political action. Sure, Jesus is important, but at the end of the day, he's, he's kind of a means to one of these self-centered, man-centered ends. And if, I want, I want, if, if you have any of those thoughts, please listen to me very, very carefully. If that's what you think Christianity is about, you may not yet be a Christian. Because the Christian life is a profoundly Christ-centered life. That's the first theme. The Christian life is a Christ-centered life. That means it's, it's grounded in and oriented toward Jesus. It is a life lived in Christ, in fellowship with him, as we wait for him to come. Then the second theme of the Christian life, it's not only a Christ-centered life, it's a grace-enriched life. Look at the passage again with me. Leave out for now that parenthetical statement in verse 6, and and look at verses 4, 5, and 7 together. Okay, so the grace of God was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, verse 7, so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. So the grace of God given in Christ Jesus results in something that Paul wants to emphasize here. It resulted in the Corinthians receiving gifts, spiritual gifts, especially in the areas of speech and knowledge. These are two of the rich blessings that God lavished upon the Corinthian church. I think it's probably true to say, if you had been able to visit the Corinthian church at this time, and you'd come home and someone asked you, what was it like? What was the church like? You probably would have said, well, they really really seem to know a lot. They know their Bibles, and some of them are really gifted to speak well about the truth of Christianity. So these are two distinctives that God uniquely gave to this congregation, this church in Corinth. But we'll see in the weeks ahead, these two gifts actually became problem areas in the Christian fellowship there. It's going to be a problem. They, they quickly become uh, imbalanced, infected by some of the remaining values of the old paganism, that treasured uh, rhetoric and forms of secret knowledge. And so they began using their gifts for self-promotion, <laughs> claiming that their gifts made them special and enabled them to basically denigrate others, to put others down. And Paul will have to deal with that firmly 
But for now, at the start here, he's, he's simply giving thanks that for whatever the abuses and distortions of the gifts, these were spiritual gifts and God intended them for the enrichment of their lives and the blessing of the fellowship of the Corinthian believers. So to be a Christian is to be enriched by the grace of God to experience the rich and free favor of God in Christ. Actually, the the two words, gift and grace, have the same Greek root, right? Charis is the word for grace. Charismata is the word for gifts. Gifts are gifts of grace. So we can... We can, really, we can really distort things if we you know, praise someone for all oh, their remarkable gifts or if we puff ourselves up and strut around because of how amazingly gifted we are. And what, what does Paul have to say to something like that? What, what do we have that we didn't receive? So you see what Paul is saying here at the start when he speaks of the Corinthians' knowledge and speech He's talking, about, he's talking about donations of grace. So there, there might be no boasting except in the God who has given them. So gifts we're seeing at the start are not given so that we might puff up ourselves and make much of ourselves, but rather employ them and put them to use for the glory of God and the good of his people. And so the Christian life, it's a a grace-enriched life. God graciously gives gifts to us in Christ. And Paul's going to spend a lot of time in this letter talking about those gifts and their purpose in the church. But you see here, he's just focused on the source of all spiritual gifts, the God of grace who enriches our lives in his Son so that the church is equipped for ministry and service so that we might be encouraged and edified and built up and pointed back again and again and again, not to gifted Christians, but to Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so the Christian life, it's a Christ-centered life, a grace-enriched life. And then thirdly, it is a word-sustained life. Okay, come back to the parenthetical comment that we left out in verse 6 and put it back in. In the middle of all of this talk about spiritual gifts, Paul says God's enriching grace that made the Corinthians abound in gifts of speech and knowledge uh, worked uh, in their lives, verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among them. Now the testimony about Christ is another way of speaking about the ministry of the word. The Christ-centered message from Holy Scripture, he says, was confirmed among you. And as it was, God in his grace began to do amazing things. Equipping them for service, enriching their lives. It is, you see, as the word has its way among us, as the testimony about Jesus is confirmed, as it penetrates and takes root in our hearts that God enriches and equips us with everything good for doing his will. That's what Paul is saying here. Christian faithfulness and fruitfulness, therefore, 
are the product of the ministry of the word of God at work among us. I think I need to say that again because it's so important. Christian fruitfulness and faithfulness are the product of the ministry of the word of God among us as the message about Jesus is confirmed among us. And that's, that's the point, I think, driven home later when you notice the word confirmed in verse 6 and the word sustain in verse 8. You see that word in verse 8, the word sustain? Actually, those are the same words in Greek. The, words, the word for sustain and confirm are the same word. So in verse 8, we have this glorious promise. Take a look at verse 8. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means we're going to make it, brothers and sisters. And that's wonderful news, isn't it? That God's going to do it. God's going to see to it. He's going to sustain us so that on the day of Christ's appearing, we stand guiltless before him. That is wonderful, wonderful news, isn't it? Sometimes you wonder, don't you? But believer in Jesus, God will keep you until the last day. He will do it. He will sustain and transform us until we shine at last with the moral glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful promise this is. But how will he do it? How will God bring it about? How will he sustain us to the end? Again, the words sustain and confirm are the same word in Greek. They both describe the effect of the word of God at work in our lives by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So God will sustain and keep us as the word about Jesus Christ is confirmed among us. As the, the ministry of the word about Jesus transforms our minds and grips our hearts and changes our lives, filling our horizons and motivating us to Christian service. See, God sustains us until the end as the ministry of the gospel is confirmed in our midst. So dear brothers and sisters, do you love the word? That's what I want to ask you today. Do, do you love the, the ministry of the word? Do you love the reading and the preaching of God's word in your life? Please do not neglect the ministry of the word in your life because it is as the word has its way that God preserves and protects and sustains and perfects his people and his church. And notice just for a second in terms of application how this theme of the Christian life has really important implications for the worship of the church. I mean, for example... In Roman Catholicism, what do you have as the, you know, the center of a worship service? It's the Mass, right? Or in a more charismatic church, the focus is often on ecstatic personal experience. But in Reformed churches, the focus is on the preaching of the Word. Not to make much of the minister, but to make much of the God of, that, of the Word. And because God works by his word. That's the, that's the emphasis of, of scripture. 
that God accomplishes his purposes. He works out his sovereign will by his word. He, he did that in the first work of creation, didn't he? And he continues to do that in his work of recreation as he makes us new and sustains and perfects us by his word and spirit. You know, that makes, if I could just share with you a little bit of pastoral, pastoral anxiety, that's what makes the tendency in our day to de-emphasize the centrality of the word read and preached in churches today so alarming and so concerning to me. I mean, scripture readings are, are virtually gone in many churches. And you know that sermons are, are being reduced to sermonettes. And the testimony about Christ is being replaced by, you know, self-help talks and motivational speakers and praise song after praise song designed to produce an emotional experience that serves as a counterfeit to a real encounter with God as he meets us in his son, Jesus Christ, through the ministry of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. But if God sustains us and gathers us and perfects us by the ministry of his word, then dear brothers and sisters, we neglect his word at our own peril, do we not? God gathers and sustains and perfects his people by his word. So love his word, brothers and sisters. Treasure it up in your hearts. Treasure it as God's life-giving life-sustaining word, because that's what it is. And then fourthly, so we've, we've, we've thought about these themes. The Christian life is a Christ-centered life. It's a grace-enriched life. It's a word-sustained life. And then finally, it's a future-oriented life. You know, some of us may be living in the past. You just can't seem to shake your past. Something that's happened to you or something that you've done. You just can't seem to move on. Others of us here today might be stuck in the present. We're just living for the here and now. We're living for what we can see and touch and taste. But the Christian life is a future-oriented life. And the future in view here is not, you know, hours ahead or even a few weeks ahead. It is, it is rather the final horizon of history, the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. God has enriched you by his grace in Christ with spiritual gifts. Okay, so as God's word is at work, and he is confirming his word and sustaining them, and he's doing great things among them, what are the Christian, Corinthian Christians doing while all this is happening? Verse 7. You are waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are waiting with their eyes fixed on the finish line. You see, this, this is the Christian life. No matter how much you know of Christ, you long for the fullness of knowing him more in the hereafter. There's a sense of holy dissatisfaction in this present life. And yes, yes, we long for the things that Jesus will bring, the, the end of sin and the death of death and the removal of all the separation caused by, by sin. But most of all, we long for him, don't we? 
We long to see him face to face. It's his appearing that we longingly look for as Christians. Brothers and sisters, one day the lordship of Jesus Christ will be visibly manifested. And every knee will bow and every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then our eternal life will begin face to face with Jesus, reveling in his glory, delighting in his love, adoring him with the saints and the angels for all eternity in his presence forever. And you see, what we need to understand and grasp and work more deeply into our lives, I think, is that that future reality has implications for how we think and live right now. This here and now is momentary. You know, we we live our lives in the waiting room. This isn't our home, and our hearts will never be fully satisfied here. But when he appears, you see, no, no no more waiting, no more longing for home. We're home with him. We're, we're home with him together. We're home, we're home with him together without sin. Isn't, isn't that, if you are a Christian in Jesus Christ, isn't that in your heart of hearts what you so deeply long for? So if your heart is centered on Christ, living a, a life enriched by God's grace, sustained by his word until you are confirmed guiltless before God in Jesus Christ, then isn't the longing of your heart for Jesus to appear and to take us into his presence because you've come to understand that is your forever home. And so I want to ask, are you you ready to go then? Are you ready to go? If he were to appear today, are you ready to go? Or is it in fact the case that this world is your home? Do you you live waiting and longing for the revelation of Jesus? Or are you still living in the past or obsessed with the present? If you are in Christ, you see, being reminded today, dear believer, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So this is the crucial question, I think, that we need to ask. Are you in Christ? Does he have your heart? I'm not talking about you being religious. I'm not talking about your coming to church. I'm asking, are you in Christ or not? It's a simple, straightforward question. Has he captured your heart so that your greatest longing is to know and see him face to face, to have more of him, to be with him, to praise him, to love and serve him without sin corrupting and influencing any of your service to him. Is that the deep longing of your heart? Are you a man or a woman or a boy or girl in Christ? If you are, this passage is telling us that you will live a grace-enriched life. That means, dear brother and sister, that God will give you everything you need. 
Here's the wonder of the Christian life. There are no unprovided for mandates in the Christian life. What God requires, he supplies. What God commands, he gives. You live a grace-enriched life in Jesus. And you will live a a word-sustained life. The word of God, which maybe once sounded to you just so bizarre and jarring, or perhaps offensive, or perhaps just completely boring, is now to your ears the word of life. A word that guides the steps of your feet, and in the the reading of the word, in the preaching of the word, in your study of the word, you you hear the voice of Jesus speaking to you, saying, this is the way, walk in it. And by his word, he will sustain you until at last one day, He rends the heavens and comes down and you will stand before the Lord on that day guiltless. And he will take you into his presence to be where he is forever. Dear friends, if you are in Christ, that is your spiritual biography. That is the story of our life together in Christ. If indeed we are in Christ. Christ. And so may the Lord enable each one of us today to be be able to answer this question, am I in Christ? You must be found in him. And the way you are found in him, of course, is by faith. Let's pray together.